Scene 4, Something from Nothing, Tony Brent. Read by Joshua Stenkamp, followed by original audio recording. It was nice to be back home in Central Florida after traveling across the country the last few weeks. One of my many reasons I enjoy living in Central Florida is the wide variety of entertainment it offers. You've got the big players, like Universal Studios, Walt Disney World, and SeaWorld. The theme parks are great, but my favorite attraction since I was a kid has been Wonderworks. From the outside, it looks like a giant mansion flips upside down. The story is that a secret government experiment in the Bermuda Triangle went wrong, causing the laboratory to suddenly take flight. It dropped out of the sky and landed upside down in its current location on International Drive. Inside this three-story upside-down mansion is the longest-running one-man dinner show in the world called the Out of Control Magic Comedy Dinner Show, a magical experience hosted by Tony Brent. The show is eclectic and mixes Tony's love for improvisation, magic, impersonations, and music into one whirlwind show. As I waited in the lobby of Wonderworks looking up at the floor, I heard my name in a soft Tennessee drawl and I turned to see Tony extend his hand. We shook, and he asked if it was okay if we stepped outside for a few drinks and a bite to eat while we conducted our interview. Food and drinks? Um, yeah. Excited to have a beer with Tony, I felt at ease by his laid-back demeanor. We headed next door to Point Orlando, a bustling shopping, dining, and entertainment complex adjacent to Wonderworks. We grabbed a table outside at a Tex-Mex spot, ordered some drinks, and began. The music was kind of loud with the people, but it really added to the environment of the interview. All right, we're interviewing Mr. Tony Brent. We're actually sitting in, uh, where are we, Adobe, Adobe Gillis, Gillis in Point Orlando? In Mexico, I mean Orlando. <laughs> yes, in Mexico. So we're having a couple of drinks while we're talking, and uh, so you might hear a couple people talking as they're taking our order. But this won't go in the book, of course, only the audio CD. <laughs> so once again, how are you doing today, Tony? I'm still doing great. Still doing, doing great. And uh, I asked you the question before we were slightly interrupted. Uh, Beatles or the Stones? I'm going to go probably number one with the Beatles. Uh, still love the Stones, but I'd say the Beatles. I, pl- I only know one Rolling Stones song, and I know a lot of Beatles songs, so I guess I'd say the Beatles. The Beatles, perfect. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions that we have is, uh, how did you get your start in magic? Well, um, my mother says I started when I was around the age of seven. We used to have this guy when I was growing up in Tennessee. We used to have this guy that came to uh, our school every year, and he did a he was a retired cop, and he did a show, and, he, and his name was Louis Mitchell, and he worked under the name Cowboy Louie, and he looked like a cowboy. He had a big black cowboy hat and a big black mustache, real tall guy. Uh, and he did a uh, sort of a say no to drugs program. It was before say no to drugs, before Dare existed. And uh, he also did a do a magic show. And I remember, I, I think he came every year, like in the spring. And he had a big impact on me. Also, a guy named Dick Williams, who was based was based out of Memphis. He was the weatherman in Memphis on tel- uh, Channel Five. But he had a 30-minute magic show that came on every weekend called Magic Land, and it's, I believe to this day, the longest-running TV magic show in America still. It ran like 26 years. Wow. And in in West Tennessee and Arkansas and Mississippi, he was a household name. Uh, I got to know him later in life, and he'd walk down the street, and people would mob him, years after he had retired, actually. 
so, and he's actually he's still alive, still alive, and he, he lives with his granddaughter in, in Memphis. And he was an influence on me, too. So probably those two guys, I would say. Did, did you start out with, like, a magic kit? Did you buy a book, or was it, did, did you meet someone who knew magic and kind of took you out of their way? Never met anyone that knew magic until I was probably grown. Well, no, I take that back. Cowboy Louie, I did know. I, got, I did get to meet him. Uh, when he would come to the school, but other than him, uh, I didn't, there wasn't anyone around where I lived that did it or, or that I could learn from. I remember um, our school library had one little red magic book that I would go check out over and over and over again, and uh, I checked it out so many times it has my name on it and nobody else's. So the school sent it to me last year. <laughs> so I have it, the book now that I had from my childhood. So I would say first books. And then my father took me to the local library, which was in Camden, Tennessee. And they happened to have had, even though it was a small library, small town, they had a lot of magic books. Like a lot of like the classical, uh, you know, Daryl Fitzke books and things like They had those there. And so I was checking out books when I was young. I think the first magic set I got was some stuff I bought from Tannins, the mail order, and I got it for my birthday. I don't remember how old I was, but I'm going to say somewhere around the age of 10 or 12, something like that. I got my first, I got a milk picture and a square circle, and that's all I remember. But I know it was, I know those two things were in there. How did you get your first start in magic, your first performance? Uh, the Amazing Jonathan and a few others talk about doing shows in school but really hitting the uh, the comedy club circuit did you ever do anything like that I did the comedy club circuit but my first paid gig was a birthday party when I was a kid I ran a little ad in the local newspaper and I did a par uh, birthday party for another kid for five dollars and I didn't know what I, I didn't have a set fee so I, they hired me and I came and did the show and I was embarrassed to ask for the money and so I, packed, I did a little show, packed up my stuff, and let, was going to leave. And my dad drove me to it, and a uh, guy came out and gave me a $5 bill. So I was about 12, 13 years old, I think. But uh, I did do comedy clubs uh, in the late 80s. Uh, I even hosted a comedy night at a restaurant slash bar in Nashville called 101st Airborne. And uh, I was in my Harry Anderson phase at that time. I thought I was trying to be like Harry Anderson. And so I was dressing like Harry Anderson, vest, tie, and the whole nine yards. And uh, But I did that. And then later on, I did some comedy clubs again in the mid-90s. But comedy clubs were dying out. So Jonathan and Mac and those guys were doing clubs before me. And they were sort of phasing out by the time I got involved in it. And the money wasn't there. So I did a few, but not a lot. Your show has gone through, what I say, a major journey. From when I first saw your show here at Wonderworks, it was the first time I met you. I was, it was a long time ago. You were doing a, a duo act when I, uh, yep. when I saw that. And the main thing was the what's in the box is what I remember yep. the, the most. Yep. How has your show gone from, and who was your partner at the time that you were doing Magic? Was it a man or? It was a guy. I think it was uh, the, Danny Devaney. Danny, Danny, Danny Devaney. Guy. Yeah. When you were doing it with Danny, how has your show changed from now? Because I think it's gone through. It's gone through major changes, I'm sure. Uh, with Danny and I, Danny and I were my best friend in the world, and he and I worked together for years before we started working together here. Well, we had a history as far back as the early 90s working at a, at a Circus Circus Casino in Tunica, Mississippi. 
So he and I, and then we also worked at a small theme park called Liberty Land, which was in Memphis, and we worked at Epcot and MGM. So we had a really, we had one of those rare uh, relationships of knowing what the other one's going to say and do on stage before we did it. Um, and so our show together was more was a, was a comedy show with magic in it. And when Danny left, he left to go open the show for Wonderworks in Pigeon Forge, and they originally asked us both to go, and I didn't want to move because I was settled here, I had kids in school, and we didn't want really to make the move. And, and he, at that time, he was a single guy, and he was good to go, so he went up there, and uh, I had to sort of reinvent myself at that point because it had been years since I worked alone. And when you go from doing a solo to a double act, but you've done the double act for years, going back to a solo act is like, you sort of got to reinvent, re, you got to find what you're going to do. And so my thing was for the first eight months or so, I was just a straight magic show, uh, doing a lot of standard, some my own material, but also probably doing some standard stuff to fill the time. And then, over time, I started more evolving into the, the impressions and the characters. And it was just, a, it just sort of happened. It wasn't an intentional thing. It just sort of was an organic thing. Uh, I did an interview last year for Mum uh, magazine. And in the interview, uh, I, I was learning things about myself as I was being interviewed, and, and, and the thing that I learned was that I was doing impressions and characters in high school, and what basically happened is I'm still doing it, or they came back, and I just allowed it to happen. So, yeah, you, for a while there, I, I don't want to use the word hippie. I guess you, mm -hmm. were, you were doing a very, a very hippie character, very yeah. peace love. Where, where did that come from? Was that it? Just happened. It just happened. It was, again was a natural thing. I've gone through three or four times in my life where I had long hair, and at one point I had long hair and a beard. And I was doing a I was doing a film, an independent film, for uh, some folks, some graduates of Full Sail in 2009, and they asked me not to cut my hair. And the character I was playing was a British burnout British rocker, uh, similar to Billy Idol, and they had my hair Billy Idol style sticking up and um, when it was over I just didn't cut my hair people said oh you should leave it my wife liked it so you should not cut it so I didn't cut it and it just then after that sort of started evolving and so it was one of those things that works looks well on Facebook and it looks it works well on the internet but in a live performance situation it didn't work so well in that parents thought I wasn't family friendly. Gotcha. So Which if you've ever seen Tony's show, it's the most family friendly show I've ever witnessed. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great show. Did you find it easier? Cause when I spoke to Rudy Kobe and we were talking about lab man and how he would, yeah. did you find it easier to write for your characters or did you find it easier to write for Tony Brent, the magician? I found it far easier to write for characters because I don't see myself as a magician. I don't see Tony Brent as a magician. So, it, for years, it was easier for me to take a premise and write material about it than it was to say, oh, well, now I'm going to do this, or I'm going to work on this. Uh, 
I will say this, over the last couple of years, it's gotten easier for me because I've really become more absolutely myself on stage than any character. And I've actually phased out some of the characters. And I'm, and, and I found, and I'm finding my natural comedic rhythm, so to speak, and it's made it a little bit easier on me now than it used to be. You know, you're all, we're always searching for what works for us, and it's hard. There's not an easy answer to it. But uh, but for many years, it was more, it's easier for me to take a, an idea or premise and write material for it. When, I think the last time that I saw your show, I, there must have been eight characters in the show, roughly? Could have been, yeah. Was that a... Did, did you start dwindling those out? Did you feel like it was too many characters, or...? Yeah, uh, the limit... I, I believe I found there's a limit to that kind of thing, of what you can do, or how many characters you can introduce into a show and make it make sense and make people not get tired of it. Um, and for me, I only have a certain amount of time particularly in the dinner show, I have an hour, roughly. And uh, I can run a little long in the 8 o'clock show, but the 6 o'clock show, I have to be fairly tight on time because we've got to turn the room around. And I introduced a few new characters, and I felt like, yeah, that's too many. You know, I just, listening to the audience reaction and whatnot, and I thought, how many more beards and wigs do I need in the show? So uh, I just took that... I take the audience reaction and how they yeah, how they seem to dig whether they like something or not, and, that, and I really go by that. So I started phasing them out, and I, I phased out my plumber routine, which had been a long time routine in the show. I phased it out this year, replaced it with a couple of other things, but not characters. Uh, in fact, I've added more material within routines instead of. I think a lot of times we go, oh, I'm gonna, I, we magicians will look at a thing as, as an idea as a, I got this routine, this routine, this routine. I'm trying to mentally do away with all routines and everything flows into each other. So one thing flows into another. So now I may have one routine that may have five different magical moments in it that's unrelated to the actual, what we'll say, quote unquote, routine is. When you were creating the characters, like let's say the plumber character for a minute, did you write it down on paper? Did you visualize, did you know exactly what you wanted that character to be? Did you did you rehearse it for your family or did you just bring it on stage and just kind of figure out if it worked? Brought it on stage and, and the idea was, I want to do something with duct tape because duct tape is funny, duct tape is universal. Uh, in my venue, I'm dealing with people from all over the world, not any demographic. I mean, I may have people from Africa, uh, Afghanistan, Kentucky, all in the same show, all in the, all on stage at the same time. And duct tape is a universal thing. Everybody knows about duct tape. So I said, I generally reverse engineer everything. I'll say, I want to do something with duct tape. What can I do with duct tape? And uh, the duct tape thumb tie came about. And I'd always, I'd done duct t uh, thumb ties for years. But I had never done a duct tape one, so um, that's what started it. So, so you, you, came, up, you came up with the effect first and then figured out what character would go with that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, with the Moses thing, uh, it was the same thing. I think I wanted to do something with water. 
and then I go, what can I do with water? Oh, I can do the hydrostatic glass. What kind of character could go with water? Oh, Moses, that might be funny. <laughs> and I just did it. <laughs> and uh, I have that, I'm not saying it's for everybody, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but uh, I'll just throw it out there and, it, and you know, I believe, I, I remember years ago, I think I, I read where uh, Jeff Hobson said he can do it, do it something three times and he knows if it's a keeper. I'm the same way. I can pretty much do something maybe one time and I know that's for me or that could work. I don't beat a piece of magic to death or a routine idea to death. If it doesn't fly for me fairly early on, I will let it go. I won't continue, you know, some people will and they'll workshop something and they'll do it and do it and do it. Most of the stuff that's in my show right now, which I would say is all my A-list stuff, I knew when I did it first one time it was a keeper. Maybe th three times at the most. In, in your show, do you, do you still play the guitar in your show? Mm-hmm. Which came first for you? Was it music or magic? Uh, magic. I wanted to learn to play the guitar when I was a kid because I had a lot, a lot of people in my uh, family had been musicians, but they, had, they either had moved away or died. I had an uncle that was a guitar player and had a band, but he didn't live anywhere near me. And so my parent, my father didn't, my parents didn't play, nobody else in my immediate family played. So I just put it off. And then I learned to play uh, not to, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And uh, I also started playing ukulele, and uh, I wanted to do it in the show and try to make it work. And so I started sticking little bits in where I would play the guitar. Sometimes do card tricks when I play. Sometimes I'll play the ukulele and do a, a, a mind reading trick or a card effect like that. I just think it's sad. You know, I was a big, huge uh, Steve Martin fan. And the fact that he plays the banjo, I love that. You know, it's just, and he plays it so well. And it really doesn't fit in, or didn't fit into the, the rest of his show at all. It just didn't. And I love the idea of sticking a, a different skill in there. Do you feel, did you feel that music has heightened your magic? Just talking to, to Rudy Kobe, the amazing Jonathan, most of them talk about, especially Rudy Kobe, talking about seeing David Bowie and listening to Alice Cooper, and the amazing Jonathan would sit in his room and listen to Alice Cooper and visualize magic. Do you feel the same that music helps you with that? It, Absolutely. It something? Absolutely. And I'll even say, I'll even, I think it makes you more creative. I think in general, music can make you more, I think it, I think you can be inspired by listening to music. And just like those guys said, you can be inspired, music can inspire magic. And it, it can inspire comedy. I mean, there's so much you can do with music that's comedy related. It can change. It, it, it can it can change the feel of the show. It can change the vibe. It can change the pacing of the show. Uh, and also, man, it's it's important to do something besides magic. You know, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about the idea of nobody wants to listen to a singer sing about songs. And it's they want to listen to a singer sing about love and all that and all the things that the public can relate to. So. Magicians need to keep the public in mind and what they like. And it's not necessarily the same thing. And music is one of those things that I think it can enhance. It's as in, and probably as important as the magic can in a show, depending on how you use it, you know.
Did you ever take any theatrical training? I took a lot of theatrical. I was a theater minor. You couldn't major in theater. But when I went, I went to the University of Tennessee, and I would have minored in theater if they had it. I majored in communications, minored in theater, studied acting for years, took acting classes out of college after I graduated. Uh, I did commercials, short films, industrial films. Uh, I even acted in dinner theater long before I was performing magic, actually. I went to school for theater. And yeah. The reason I ask is, for the young magician out there, would you suggest... Would you like another beer? Yes, please. <laughs> like I said, we're having an interview outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, being a theater major, I felt that, that learning theater and learning from the great Stella, Stella Adler, doing... Stanislavski, Gertowski, that it heightens my magic. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. That a, was there anyone that, if you did any methods, was there anyone that you specifically enjoyed that you thought, this is the person for me or any? Well, uh, I did a little bit of all of those. I also did Uta Hagen. Uh, Uta Hagen was, uh, was my college professor. That was his, uh, his standard teacher. And so we did a lot of that. Respect for acting. Um, the big thing for me is is the, is the idea that um, a facial expression can change a routine. Movement is so important in, in, in theater, but it's rarely ever talked about in magic, uh, about how you stand, your posture, your facial expressions. Uh, I can enhance a, a routine in my show literally with uh, raising an eyebrow during my salt form. I can increase the laugh, and I've done. I know this because I've done it thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And I will experiment with different stances and different motions and different uh, changing the timing just slightly. And theater, man, in, in theater you learn about your body, and that's rarely taught in any any kind of performing arts. I know. I know some clown. Of course, in mine you have it is, but. In our world, I don't think it's generally taught, and, it, and it's. You sh I absolutely recommend everybody studying theater, study movement, study. I mean, I studied lighting design. Of course, I didn't, I'm not an expert in lighting, but lighting is so important if you're doing a proper stage show. Have you ever on stage had anything go wrong? Oh, absolutely. And was there a way that you covered for it, or did you was did you ever have a backup for something that goes wrong, or? Um, if it's a trick that could go wrong, uh, yes, I have a backup for it. Uh, I, I uh, just the other night did a, uh, I've got a version of the tossed out deck, and uh, I keep an invisible deck handy if someone miscalls or tries to mess with me. Um, and that's always there. I, but I've done, the, <laughs> I've had, like the other night I had one, one effect where it's hard to explain what it is, but I forgot to preset it. And, I, and so I preset it while I'm talking. And uh, the amazing Jonathan, if he, he listens to this, John, uh, AJ, you were doing this uh, show in Biloxi, Mississippi one time at Bonkers, and I was there with you, and you forgot to preset your show, the whole show. <laughs> and we were in the green room, and it was showtime, so we went down there, and you go, what the Billy? <laughs> I forgot to preset. So you preset your show during the show. 
And I was in the audience laughing hysterically. I don't know if you remember that or not. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you, pre you had to pre and it's probably not the first time you did that. But to talk, that is a guy who's done so many shows, he's so at ease. He didn't preset anything. Yeah, the, the, the audience has no idea. And the audience has no idea. So I did a show about a week ago, and I basically did the same thing. I'm backstage playing solitaire, and I walked out, and half my show I didn't preset. And so I, that's the great thing about being a comedy magician. They have no idea what you're going to do anyway. And, and, and once you're at, so at ease, you know, you need to be so at ease with your material that they can't tell that, you know, I have this tendency of everything reads on my face. This is what my wife says. So I have to be, my mind has to be right about what I do or it, it just reads to the audience. And I think probably most people are that way and you just don't realize it. But if you're uncomfortable, they're going to know it. And uh, you have to find that place where you're so comfortable with your material. Where the, well, when I say material, I mean the workings of the trick and your material, your overall routines. You got to be so comfortable that you can allow yourself to fix problems as they happen. Um, a couple of nights ago, I had a, a, a deal where I had a piece of tape that a card gets stuck to. I forgot to preset it. And so I just, uh, I, I picked up the, the card and held it. And of course, it's not as good, but the audience didn't know. And those things are going to happen. And you have to realize the audience doesn't always know, you know. You, we have to worry about the right things, not the wrong things. And it's don't don't run if you're not being chased. Uh, but I've had everything in the world happen. I used to do aerial fishing, caught a goldfish in a wine glass, and I would hold it out to a gentleman and I would joke, you know, take a drink. And one night I did, and the guy took it and drank the goldfish. And I don't know if he realized. Was it Matt King? Was it? No. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, and the goldfish got stuck in the guy's throat. And you could see it going down his windpipe. And of course, half the audience, that, the ones that saw it, are freaking out. And the other ones thought it must be rigged that he's part of the show. Um, so weird things like that. When Danny and I were working together one time, we had a guy who uh, we used to borrow an object from the audience and juggle it. So Danny would ask for something from the audience to juggle, and a guy threw his prosthetic leg on stage. <laughs> So we're standing there on stage, and all of a sudden, boom, a leg comes flying on stage. I'll take another okay. one. And uh, he was a war veteran, and it was a $40,000 titanium prosthetic leg, computerized. It had a computer. You could see it. Jeez. And he goes, you guys can't break it. So Danny juggled a prosthetic leg and a tic-tac and something else. <laughs> and it still had the shoe on it, too. It was hysterical. It had a tennis shoe on it. You were talking about you just. I mean, I, I've done shows where needle through arm has gone wrong. Okay. Yeah. And it, I still have a problem with it bothering me that it just mm. it hits me so hardcore that I don't know what to do. I I freeze up and with all my theatrical training, doing Shakespeare, doing shows, it still bothers me. How do you shrug it off? How do you just go? It messed up. I just move on. Is there afterwards, or does it really bother you, or is it just you've been doing it so long? Or? I tell you what. I, love, I take magic seriously and not seriously at the same time. I, I, that's, if that makes any sense at all. I, I, take, I take, I deeply love the art of it, but at the same time, 
I try to look at it from the audience and standpoint. And I have had shows where I've messed up, still get a standing ovation. Because the thing is, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is whether they like you enough to like what you're doing. And I try to sell them on me, not what I'm doing. I try to sell them on liking me as a person, not what I'm doing. And if they like me as a person, they're gonna like me regardless. And again, it I, I'm not saying it doesn't bother me, but I, at the end of the day, I have to shrug it off and go on to the next show. And, and, and so in, in that respect, I say, well, it's, it's, a, it's not that important. It's, it's a trick. I mean, it's, I'm not changing anybody's life with that one particular routine. And you just got to let it go and not dwell on it. It's hard. Do you do anything before you go on stage to get in the moment? Do you, a lot of people do something different to, to, to get in there. I call it the Zen moment right yeah. before they go on stage. What, what do you do to get yourself in the zone? I used to, I've done everything. I used to take 10 deep breaths. I used to stretch. I used to visualize certain things. Um, and what I do now is nothing. I clear my mind and I don't think about the show. I don't think about me. I try to go out there completely fresh and let it happen. And I do a lot of ad-libbing and a lot of improv because I found if I allow certain things to get too, if I'm not static in my delivery and it becomes too set, it starts to lose its edge and it's not funny anymore. The only thing I would say that I maybe do is I try to visualize the audience as my family and friends, not as somebody I'm trying to impress. Because I think generally as an entertainer, of course, number one, you do want to impress them. But the problem with that is if you go out with that attitude, you're going to be a little uptight because think about it. If you're going in for a job interview, you're not going to be you're not going to be at ease. And for me to work, my character to work, I have to be totally at ease. And that's when I'm the funniest. Is when I'm absolutely loose and in the moment, and it and at ease, and not worrying about anything. And the way I found that that works for me is by clearing my mind and just going out there and, and not even thinking about anything. Uh, I, I, like, I'll mainly sit backstage and either play the guitar or I'll play games on my phone or sometimes I'll read, but I don't sit back there, I don't practice and I don't think about magic. I don't think about the show at all. I just, I wanna go out there fresh and in the moment, you know. And, and so I guess maybe the answer is I don't really, that, I guess that is my ritual, yeah. even though it's not really a ritual. Did you have somebody that you looked up to when you were, when you were growing up that you said, I want to be that guy, I want to get to where he's at? I wanted to be Jonathan Winters, and I wanted to be Steve Martin, and I wanted to be Robin Williams. And I'm, an, I'm a guy who, uh, when it comes to... I was a big Harry Houdini fan as a child, uh, growing up. But I got out of magic when I got when I turned 16, and I got into acting and theater and comedy. And I did not do any magic until I was in my late 20s. So there's, there's been like gaps where I didn't do magic at all. Was that a good thing? Yes, I think so. I, I, because I think it makes me see the show from the audience's standpoint. 
than from a magician standpoint. And I was heavily, like I said, I, I, I loved the idea of Jonathan Winters coming out with nothing and doing 10 minutes with this empty cup or a stick or whatever. The idea of making something from nothing, uh, which is what this tattoo means, by the way. Uh, what does that say? It says ex nihilo. It means uh, from nothing. To create from nothing. And I'm left-handed. And uh, so the idea of... I want what I do to be in the moment with the, with the audience, not, not seemingly a set show. And uh, I think it's more memorable. But... I, and I may be totally wrong in all that, but, but I've had these big, long gaps of where I didn't do it. Now, having said that, my influences in magic would be like Fred Capps. Uh, Fred Capps, because if you watch Fred Capps, he always had fun. And when I, you know, he's a wonderful manipulator, but what, what I loved about, what, the number one thing I always loved about Fred Capps, and it's partially why I do the salt pour, is go back and watch him on video and he's having fun. And how many magicians look like they're having fun? Almost none. And you see these serious manipulators. And what what's fun about that? I want to see a guy with a with a wink, with a twinkle in his eye, a smile on his face. And Fred Caps, you could not help but smile when you watch him. Uh, I was I love Tommy Cooper. I was heavily influenced by British humor, Monty Python was a huge influence on Seems me. Seems to be a very big trend. Is it? You yeah, think? with the magicians. Yeah. Oh, really? Everyone I've interviewed has mentioned Monty Python. Really? Hill, oh, really? Did yeah. not know that. Yeah. See, uh, I didn't know that. I'm a, I'm a very big Chaplin fan, and uh, so is Amazing Jonathan. We had a big discussion uh, about yeah. that. And the one of the the last questions. Sorry, that I'm rambling. No, no, no. This is great. Trust me, everyone's going to enjoy it. Um, one of the last questions I have is uh, two, I guess. What What do you feel? When do you feel that your career was made? That you feel that I've I've reached a level that I'm comfortable at, or have you not reached that yet? Do you think there's something more? Well, it's a tough one. I don't I don't like the idea of thinking I've reached anything, uh, and I really don't look at it that way. Uh, I think I don't I don't believe anybody ever perfects anything. It's it's an ongoing process until you either die or you decide to quit. Um, so having said that, I don't know. I mean, I just don't think in terms of that. I mean, I I've been able to make a a, a living. I've been able to go home and sleep in my bed at night. I can travel when I want to. If I want to do gigs out of town, I can do them. But I have. A steady gig too so I've got the best of both worlds and I you know I uh, it's like uh, Louis CK said in a, uh, a comedy interview that uh, that Joan uh, Joan Rivers told him know when you're lucky and I thought about that he says you got to know when you're lucky and I feel like I know I'm lucky so I'm happy, you know, I could be back out doing, you know, bar mitzvahs or birthday parties. And I'm not knocking that. I loved them when I did them. But um, it's just an ongoing process, you know. I, I don't, I'm happy and I try to, 
I try to live my life that way. So, what are my aspirations? I've done a lot of stuff already. I mean, and, I, and I'm happy. I wrote a children's book a couple of years ago that I have out. Um, um, and I'm doing some more writing, some other, some other books I'm writing, but I'm procrastinating with that right now. And I just slowly, you know, I, I feel like my show is, is constantly evolving and changing into something else. And so that's it. You know, I'm just living the dream. You know, what advice would you give to a young magician or a younger you? A younger me? Yeah. What advice would you give them? I'd say ultimately what you need to be is yourself instead of trying to find. It's very hard. I believe it's very hard to be yourself on stage because you're vulnerable. Like if you truly are yourself, when you walk out on stage, I know I know plenty of guys, magicians who are hysterical in real life, but when they get on stage, they become this magician, which if they would go out and be their natural self, would be hysterical on stage. And they don't for some reason, and I've wondered why, but I sort of get it because we're all vulnerable if you, if you actually go out and you're being yourself and you're telling your and you're telling some things maybe, or you're being natural, you're being ultimately yourself, you put yourself out there like comedians can do. But I would say give that a try first instead of trying to be David Copperfield <laughs> or trying to be Matt King or trying to be somebody. I know when you're young, you don't know what else to do, so you imitate. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a industry based on imitation because you don't really know what else to do. But I would say learn all the theater you can, learn all the other disciplines that you can, uh, movement, uh, voice, and diction, um, and pay really, real, as much attention as you can to your appearance and finding your look because that's one of the things I've had a lot of trouble with. It really annoys me to see a magician who is un, as, as sloppy, yet I tend to be one, which is ironic. But I'm the exact same. If I'm watching a video of a guy and his shirt's untucked, yet his shirt hangs down way too long, low, it really annoys me. Yet I have the same ten tendencies to do the same thing. So I would say pay very close attention to. It's all in the details, really. It comes down to it. It's all and listen to the public. Don't listen to magicians. Don't ask your buddy, your magic buddy, what they think. Ask your girlfriend what she thinks. Go to your uh, friends who are non-magicians and say, look at this and tell me what you think and I'll guarantee you, you'll be blown away because the responses will be nothing like what the magicians will tell you. Perfect. Yeah. That's it. That was a great interview. Thank Thanks, you, Tony. Man. By the yeah, way, I'm long-winded too. Oh, no, no, no. That's all right. If you're ever in Orlando, folks, come out to Wonderworks. See Tony's show because it is a staple of Orlando magic and uh, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for interviewing me. We sat at the table for a few minutes longer, discussing films and music while finishing our last round of beers. Realizing his next show was drawing near, we quickly said our goodbyes. Tony headed back into Wonderworks and I to my car. It was a nice change to not having to jump from plane to plane to go home. <laughs>